come now to hear from God's Word, and our reading is from Mark chapter 6. We've been working through Mark's Gospel in our Sunday services. Come to chapter 6. We've seen Jesus do some amazing things. We've seen him do some amazing miracles in the second part of chapter 4 and chapter 5. And as Jesus does these miracles, people come in faith to believe in him, to believe who he is. Chapter 6 takes a slightly different turn. So we begin our reading at verse 1. This is God's word. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, The prophet is not without honour except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marvelled because of their unbelief. Then he went about in the villages in a circuit teaching. And he called to himself, he called the twelve to himself and began them to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, In whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Amen. Amen. Our reading there. Thank God that He blesses us when we read His truth. Well, folks, as I was saying, I've been driving to Milan and I've ignored the signs. The sign that says road ahead closed. I've ignored it and it's not because I don't think it applies to me. I know that it applies to me. I've just ignored it. I've been willing to risk the damage that I might cause to the car or to myself. If I got a flat tire, it would be my own fault. If I damaged the car, it would be my own fault. I would have to face up to the consequences of what come my way. And I have to be honest with you, as, as I thought about this morning's sermon and, and saw the connection that there was with the children's address, I have to confess that this is a tough sermon. It's going to be tough to preach and it will be tough to hear, because this sermon is a warning. It's a warning sign for us to turn back and repent. It's a warning for us in the church 
that we are in a hugely privileged position, that we can hear the preaching of the gospel faithfully week by week. The message of Mark chapter 6 verses 1 to 13 is that those who have listened to and heard the gospel will face very harsh judgment if we choose to ignore it. We know that the signs are for us. Are we going to ignore it and face judgment? Or are we going to accept it and receive forgiveness and grace? See, it's one thing not to know the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But nobody listening to this today can claim ignorance. If you know the truth and you still choose to reject it, to reject Jesus and his word, then you only have yourself to blame. And you're going to have to face up to the consequences. And those consequences are great. And they are grave. And they are disastrous. There are some people in our passage today who accept the message of Jesus, but the overwhelming sense of the passage, I'm sure you heard that as we read it, is not about faith, it's about people who don't have faith. It's, this is a section about unbelief. Jesus is rejected. His teaching is rejected. and We see that in two ways in our passage today. Firstly, there are those from Jesus' hometown, his, his own country, and they reject Jesus himself. They reject him because, well, they think he's too ordinary. And then there are those who reject the message of Jesus as it's given through the apostles. And Jesus says they will face greater punishment than Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment. Let's begin by looking at the rejection of Jesus himself, verses 1 to 6. We're not told in Mark that we're in Nazareth, specifically. Nazareth is not mentioned, but I think the Greek makes it clear. Jesus is returning to his hometown, and he goes to the synagogue of his hometown. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is known as Jesus of Nazareth. He wasn't born there, but that's where he grew up, that's where he's from, and that's where he's returning to. And so we're going to assume that it's Nazareth that he's in. And I want you to think about it, what, what a big deal this is. Jesus has gone off and he's been preaching and teaching and healing many, many people. He's become pretty famous. He's become a bit of a, a superstar, a, a preacher, a healer, an exorcist. And so his return to Nazareth would have been a dramatic event. I'm sure we've seen those movies where someone leaves the small town and goes off to become a big shot in New York. And then they have to return to their hometown for some reason. And you know, they usually end up realizing that all they ever wanted was a home all along. They fall in love later happily ever after. Well, that's Hollywood. That's the Hollywood version. That's not the story of Jesus' return to Nazareth. I think it's fair to say there's quite a bit of resentment built up around Jesus. In the eyes of the people, Jesus has changed and not for the better. It would be like someone moving off to Belfast and then 
coming back here, and people would say, you know, they've become a bit of a tiny. Although I have to say that the tiny folk would say the same thing about somebody moving off and coming back, that they've become a culture. I don't think we should judge either way. But the people from Nazareth, they, they judge Jesus. Jesus has returned into their midst. He's been off performing amazing miracles, teaching about the kingdom of God. He returns to Nazareth as the Messiah, walking into their midst, but they don't recognize him as the Messiah. What they see is that wee lad who was a carpenter, but has left them behind. I think if we drill down a bit, we can surmise that the people wouldn't be happy with Jesus because although he trained as a carpenter, well, he's not taken on the family business. He's gone away to lead the life of a rabbi, a religious teacher, and that's not what Jesus was trained to do. So even the astonishment they had in verse 2 about his teaching and his miracles, well, even that is tainted. Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him? They're basically saying, where does he get off telling us all this? We know who he is. And he has no qualifications to tell us anything. He's a carpenter. We watched him grow up. His, his brothers and sisters are here with us. But little do they realize that Jesus does not need to be taught anything. Jesus doesn't need to be taught the things he knows he doesn't need to be taught how to interpret and teach the scriptures. Jesus himself is the Son of God. He is the Word of God, the Father. His authority doesn't come from learning and qualifications, and that's how we would expect it for any other human being. His authority, the authority of Jesus, comes from himself. It comes from his identity as Jesus the Christ. Son of God most high. But we've got to remember Nazareth is a small community, about 500 people. And so chains are wagging and gossip is flowing and their slander of Jesus goes further than doubting him because of his lack of training. Their abuse of Jesus here is subtle, but it's very cruel. Look at how the people of Nazareth refer to Jesus in verse 3. Is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary? Now, it would have been normal to refer to a man as the son of his father. But they don't use Joseph's name. They call him the son of Mary. And you know what they're doing? They're calling into question the circumstances of his birth. They're asking, how can this illegitimate carpenter get the ability and authority to do the things he's doing and say the things he's saying? Should he be at home here with us? We're stay we've stayed at home. Should he be taking care of the coffee business? And the irony, of course, is that Jesus is taking care of the family business. He's doing the will of his heavenly Father. And they might think that calling him the son of Mary is an insult, but that's because they don't know who his father is. They don't know God, his father. They don't know God and the power that Jesus has 
as the Son of God. So the people of this whole time reject the teaching of Jesus because to them, well, he's too simple. He's too ordinary to be a great teacher, to be a miracle worker, to be the Son of God. To them, he cannot be the Son of God. He's just the illegitimate Son of Mary. They make a huge mistake in rejecting Jesus. But they only have themselves to believe. He's right there in their midst. He's preaching the gospel in their synagogue with ultimate faithfulness because he is Jesus. He is the truth. There is no deceit in him. Yet they still reject him. It's too normal for them. As the saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. And Jesus speaks a word of judgment to them using an expression of the time, a prophet is not without honour except in his own country. This way, Jesus connects himself to the prophets of old, those who were sent to God's people, but ended up getting stoned for their message of repentance. Jesus is the final message of God. And Nazareth is just a mini example of the rejection Jesus faced among the people of God. As John puts it in chapter 1 of his gospel, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. We've seen the opposition between Jesus and the religious leader. Next week we'll celebrate Easter Sunday. So when he comes after the Friday when Jesus was put to death by his own people at the hands of the Jewish leaders. Mark tells us in verse 5 of chapter 6 that Jesus could do no mighty work there. I don't think we should take it that Jesus wasn't able, of course he was able to do a mighty work, but that he didn't do it because even that would not convince the people. Their unbelief and attitude was clear. Another miracle, well, that would only cause them to harden their hearts further. That would bring a harsher judgment on them. I want to ask you friends, does this apply to you today? The people of Nazareth were so blinded by the ordinariness of Jesus that they couldn't accept the extraordinary Son of God in their midst. I wonder if there are any of us who have heard the gospel so many times that we just ignore it. Has our familiarity with Jesus led us to reject him because well, we think we already know it all. We already know all about him message that you are a sinner, that you're headed for eternal destruction in hell, but Jesus has provided a way of escape and rescue for you, that you might come to eternal life instead. Well, that's quite a simple message. And I really hope that you haven't heard it so many times that it just rolls off like water off a duck's back. Friends, you need to accept Jesus as Lord and Saviour today. This message is for all of us. For those of us who have accepted the Gospel already, can we be tempted to want more? Can we be tempted to reject the Gospel message because it seems too ordinary, it's too bland, we've been there, we've done that. What about extra things? What about special blessings? 
sort of an extra warm fuzzy feelings down the back of my neck. What about? What about? Friends, the gospel message is not just for non-Christians. It's for all of us as God's elect people. I've said this before, but don't allow that to make you reject it. The gospel isn't just the entry point to the Christian life. The gospel is the means by which we are sustained and carried through the whole Christian life. As Sinclair Ferguson memorably put it, the gospel isn't just the ABCs of the Christian faith. It is the A to Z. In one week's time, we'll be gathered together again for, for the first time in three months. For many of us, it will be exciting. It will be exciting for me. But you know that feeling of excitement will quickly fade. There's not going to be any flashing lights or sound effects to keep our attention. We will resume to come and sit under God's ordinary means of grace. Praying, singing, reading, and especially the preaching of God's Word. We cannot let familiarity with those ordinary means lead us to reject them. We cannot be like the people of Nazareth, missing the extraordinary Christ in our midst because we just see the ordinary. Friends, God does extraordinary things through the ordinary means. He calls forth faith in his people. He brings us everlasting life instead of everlasting destruction. He assures us that he is ours and we are his. Through the ordinary means, God rescues and redeems his people by the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is something extraordinary. Please don't miss that. Because if you miss it, you've only yourself to blame. And there's going to be harsh judgment for you. And we see that moving into the second way people reject the teaching of Jesus in verses 7 to 13. The rejection of Jesus' apostles. Jesus has called the twelve to him before. We saw that in chapter 3. But there's been a lot of water under the bridge and, and literally under the boat since then. And we could really contrast the disciples with the people of Nazareth in our passage. The people of Nazareth couldn't see the extraordinary in their midst. The disciples, well, they are becoming more and more and more convinced of the extraordinariness of Jesus. They are becoming more convinced that he is the Son of God. After everything that they heard and seen him do, it has to be said that these men are in a privileged position they spend a lot of time with Jesus. They've seen the amazing things he did. They've heard all of his teaching and parables about the kingdom of God. And they've even had those parables explained to them by Jesus himself. Although I think we should say that we are even more privileged. We have the whole Bible to teach us. For the disciples though, what Jesus is doing is preparing them. He's training them up. He knows that one day he's going to leave them behind. He's going to give them the gift of the Holy Spirit. He will ascend into heaven. And they will be the ones who have to take the message of God's kingdom from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
So the disciples, in a way, are like apprentices. In Mark's gospel so far, he's appointed the twelve to be with him, to learn from him. Now he's sending them out to have a go for themselves. But he will be there whenever they're finished to evaluate and to help them to learn from the experience. I'm sure that sort of thing happens with apprentices all the time. I know it happened with me whenever I was learning to teach and doing teaching practice. Slowly over time I was given more and more responsibility for teaching the class. The teacher was there watching on, evaluating all that I was doing. It was only whenever the teacher would leave me alone with the class, which I'm not really sure they were allowed to do technically, but it was only whenever they left me alone that I knew I was ready to teach on my own. And the analogy isn't perfect because Jesus gives the gift of the Holy Spirit, and so in that way he didn't leave the apostles on their own. And I think that it helps us to understand what's going on in our passage. This is a training process for the disciples. Jesus is training them how to be evangelists. They should take nothing with them except their staff, their sandals, and one tunic. And the way that Jesus describes this here, I think, would evoke the image for, for the, the disciples of the Hebrews as they were escaping Egypt in the Exodus. They went out into the wilderness trusting that God would provide for them. And in a real sense, the disciples were doing the same. And I think we do the same in the church today. We are wandering in the wilderness of this evil age. We, we don't have a home. We're headed for our hope, but we don't have a home in this world. And yet we trust that God will provide for us. We're fully reliant on God, aren't we? Like the Israelites of old, we're pushing on, we're pressing towards the promised land of heaven, which will mark the end of our wandering. But for now, we are wandering, giving up the things of this world, holding on to those things loosely, and trusting completely in God. Then we come to the teaching of Jesus in verses 10 and 11. It should be expected by the church that some people will reject the message of Christ. Some people will. And Jesus is basically saying, it's their own fault if they reject it. If you share the gospel and people reject it, they only have themselves to blame. They can't say they weren't warned. It's like the road to Canaan. The signs are all there. I shouldn't have gone down that road. I only have myself to blame for any damage that I do. And so I don't want to keep banging the same drum here, but I think the teaching of Jesus is clear. I think his message is stark. Those who know the truth and reject it will be judged more harshly. It will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for people who have heard the gospel but rejected it. I don't know if I say this enough, but there is a day of judgment coming. And those who are outside of Christ will face the full wrath of God for all eternity. Hell is a real place. And there's only one way to avoid it, and that is trusting in Christ. I've 
comment I've had over including this quote from R.C. Sproul on this passage. I think it's a bit shocking and it will sound very harsh to many people, but it's true. And sometimes we need a shock to wake us up. Sproul writes this. He says in the church today when we do mass evangelism, the standard technique is to offer an invitation after the sermon. We say, as many as would like to respond to Christ, come now. However, we do not usually add, as many as would not like to respond to Christ, go to hell. Harsh. But it's true. Judgment is coming. And there's only one way to escape it. That's what our catechism readings have been all about over the last few weeks. Go back and read the last few catechisms. How can we escape God's wrath? Well, there's only one safe place. And that is the place that God's wrath has already been poured out. God's wrath has been exhausted upon Christ as he died on the cross. And it's only in Jesus that we might avoid the everlasting condemnation of hell. It's through trusting in Jesus that we can avoid a worse judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah. His friends hear me when I say this, and I say it out of love and concern for your everlasting souls. You have no excuse. Do you know the good news? If you ignore it, if you reject Jesus, you only have yourself to blame. You might have been coming to church your whole life. And that's not going to save you. In fact, unless your faith is in Jesus and Him alone, you will be judged more harshly because you know the truth and you still rejected Him. Please, please don't leave it another moment. Come to Jesus now. If you're unsure how to do that or exactly what that means, then give me a phone call today. Let me finish though by pointing us to the final two verses of our passage. Because there is the amazing grace of God in action in these verses. The disciples go out and they do the things that Jesus has been doing. They preach repentance. They cast out demons. They heal many people. We can see that when the word of God is preached, God's kingdom is manifest. It is demonstrated in the lives of all who believe. There are people who respond in faith to Jesus and his message. Not everyone rejects it. Some, maybe even lots, will reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, but not all. For all who put their faith in him, everlasting faith begins at that moment. Take heart today. If your faith is in Jesus, you are in the kingdom of God. While it often feels like wandering in the wilderness, it often seems very ordinary. God is doing something extraordinary in you. He is preparing you through the wilderness to enter into the promised land. Let's pray together.